this is the Word of God. Before I actually shouldn't have said that just yet. I will toggle back and forth in my mind between Sennacherib and Sennacherib in terms of pronunciation. Uh, all of my life, I've been bedeviled by those two different ways of pronouncing this name. So if you're, I'm going to try to be consistent. I don't know which is the first one that's going to come out of my mouth. Whatever I say when I get to that word, I'm going to try to say that way throughout the remainder of today. But if I flip back and forth, it's just because that's, that's just tomato, tomato. This is the word of God. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his filled commander with a large army from Latius to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to him, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know that you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim Shebna and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall, who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their hand, lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpit? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? 
But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Well, before we uh, look at this text and then uh, the material that comes afterwards, let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that uh, this morning you would equip us with a full measure of your Holy Spirit. Uh, we would ask that you would help us to know you truly, uh, help us to love you purely, help us to, to come closer to fulfilling that greatest commandment to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength than we ever have before. Uh, Lord, there are some here today undoubtedly who are uh, feeling subjectively the experience of your favor. They, they, they feel your face shining upon them. And there are others undoubtedly subjectively who feel like you are very far away. Lord, there are some here this morning who remember what it was like to rejoice in your presence. There are, there are some who remember what it was like to, to feel profound and deep love for you. Lord, whatever our state this morning, raise us all to higher ground than we have ever occupied before. Help us all to love you, to truly love you, and help us also to love one another. Lord, help us to be like Jesus. Help us this morning to see His nature, His character. When we celebrate communion, help us to properly remember Him and to be spurred on to worship Him and to be like Him. Help us to, help us to understand more deeply than we ever have before the profundity of Your love that has provided atonement for us and eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, for those who are not here with us, uh, either traveling or ill, we pray that you will be with them. Uh, bless them where they are. Strengthen their hearts. Encourage their minds. Draw them closer to you uh, than they ever have been. And Lord, keep them safe. Protect them. Guide them. Watch them. Uh, Father, help us to truly worship you in this time that we have this morning. We pray also that your blessing will be upon the seminar that's later this afternoon, uh, the parenting seminar. Give Brett uh, the words to say, help him to communicate uh, your truth, uh, and give receptive hearts and attentive minds to all those who will be here. May it be a time of rich blessing. So, Lord, we look to you. Uh, you are the great King. Uh, help us to honor you and treat you accordingly, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a number of years ago, for a number of years, uh, I helped at a teens camp, and I was a counselor for a number of years, and I was camp director for a couple of years, uh, spoke at this camp, so I had a, a, lot a long standing involvement in a variety of roles. And the hallmark of this camp, one week long, was every year we would go on a three-day, two-night canoe trip off-site. And so my good friend at that time would lead the trip. He'd, he'd be the lead canoe. And I would be at the very back, 
the very back of this flotilla uh, of 20 canoes or so, sort of shepherding people along. Because uh, you'd get people who had all kinds of different abilities. So you know, the, the first hour or so would be saying really productive things to people like, oh, no, 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 sorry, uh, that paddle's upside down. You know, hold it the other way. You know, like things like that. Or, or no, no, it's, it's a J stroke, not a Z stroke. Like, just try to bring it back a little bit more. You know, and to some lazy kids, like, like please put the paddle in the water. Like, like do something, you know. And, and you get some kids who are just, just spinning in circles, and you just feel so sorry for them. But what can you do? You know, so, so you go out, and you're canoeing, and, and you have all the, all the flips and canoe over canoe rescues in real time. No one knows what they're doing, and it's just, just a, a grand time kids going to the hospital with sunburns some year. Uh, kids, I remember one year, it was so cold. Like everyone had wished they had packed their lamb thermal underwear, but they didn't. Uh, so there's a child walking around in shorts and a t-shirt one morning, and I've never seen anyone who actually looked blue before. And he looked just blue, and he just not smurf blue, but like this sort of bluish pigmentation. And he's walking around insisting he's not cold. <laughs> okay, that's great, buddy. Uh, you are, but you know, we'll, we'll just bypass that for now. I remember one year uh, canoeing, and I had two campers in the canoe, starting someone in the bow, and someone sitting in the middle. And this girl sitting in the middle says, tell me a Bible story that I don't know. I said, okay. Didn't have much of a church background. So as I, as I thought through uh, what might be an interesting story that someone might not know, I landed on this one. Here's a story of trusting God in the face of all evidence where God does something incredibly surprising, something that you couldn't have imagined. And so as we were canoeing, I... I unfolded this story from Isaiah. What I didn't tell her was that chapters 36 through 39, and I didn't tell her this um, because at that point I didn't know it, Uh, but the reality is chapters 36 through 39 really serve as two vignettes in the life of Hezekiah, which illustrate the theological truths you've gotten in the book up until now in the first 35 chapters. Part of what the first 35 chapters of Isaiah are doing is they're teaching you, listen, Trust in God. God's going to send a special son. God's going to provide deliverance. Do not make alliances with other nations. Trust in God. Here, you have two illustrations in 36 and 37, and then 38 and 39. You have two illustrations from the life of the same king about what it looks like to trust in God and what it looks like to trust in the other nations. Two vignettes. So this is a perfect illustration, actually. Sometimes people are trying to figure out, why is this here in terms of the the, the structure of the book? Well, chapter 40 introduces a brand new shift in the message of Isaiah. It's a new section in Isaiah. It's like a new chapter in Isaiah. This historical narrative, after all of these oracles, provides a historical example of exactly what the message of the book has been about up until now. And it's this, who are you going to trust when you are totally overwhelmed, and in this case, literally besieged by the superpower of the day? 
Where are you going to go? Who are you going to rely on? In verses 4 through 10 of chapter 36, the field commander of the Assyrians, who have already laid waste to a lot of Judah, have now surrounded Jerusalem, the city, the last bastion. And he calls out, and you should, if, you, if you've been thinking through Isaiah carefully, these words should have a very ironic sort of resonance. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. Say, wait a minute. Who's the great king in the book of Isaiah? It's not the king of Assyria. It's not the king of Jerusalem. Are you going to listen to what the great king says, or are you going to listen to what the person pretending to be the great king says? In other words, this is one of those things that pops pretensions from from the very beginning. All of this human pretension, are you going to buy into that, or are you going to listen to God? Who's the great king? Who speaks? Whose mouth, whose words will you listen to? Who is the actual king in the universe? On what are you basing this confidence of yours? Then he argues two things. He says, listen, I know you're trying to rely on Egypt, but don't bother. Egypt is like uh, you know, a cane for an elderly person that's, that's almost sawed in half. And it looks good, but you're going to get out of the cane stand, and then you're going to lean on it, and it's going to snap and you're going to fall, and if we were going to update it today, you'd say, you know, you're the, this is like, this is like rel- relying on Egypt is like relying on a walker with a loose wheel. You know? You're going to start going down that hall, that wheel's going to come off, and you're going to topple over and break a hip. You know, that's sort of the idea here. You're gonna, this cane's going to shatter, it's going to pierce your hand. You rely on Egypt, and it's going to be a disaster for you. This is the argument from the Assyrians. Not only that, But Hezekiah, you've removed Yahweh's altars. We know with Hezekiah at this point, uh, Judah had been filled with all kinds of syncretistic paganism. All kinds of altars had been set up. Hezekiah had gone through the land, reforming the land, removing all these pagan shrines. So the Assyrians come in and they go, look, you've removed the altars to the gods. They're not going to be happy with you. So don't think your God's happy. He's mad at you. In fact, he's told us to come and attack you. Do you think we would do this without the Lord? Of course the Lord's told us to do this. So what he's trying to argue is your allies in Egypt are no good. God's mad at you for reducing His worship. The Lord is actually on our side, but then He'll slip up later in verse 20, in verse 20 where He says, Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? So he argues two things. He argues the Lord is on our side, and then he argues, it doesn't matter anyway. The Lord's not capable of rescuing you from us, no matter whose side he's on. It doesn't matter. Now, the critical verse in this section, though, is verse 15. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. That's the critical verse. Are you going to be persuaded to trust in the Lord? Are you actually going to believe the promises of God? Are you going to believe that God is capable of delivering you from any circumstance? Yes or no? Hezekiah is going to tell you, trust in God. 
the Assyrian commander says, don't let him persuade you to trust in God. Don't listen to the prophet. Don't listen to the law. Don't listen to God's revelation. Do not trust in God. God will fail you. God cannot deliver you from my hand. Now, why does he think that? He thinks that because verse 19 reveals that the king of Assyria thinks that the Lord of Israel is just like every other god. What other nation's gods have been able to deliver that land from the Assyrians? And the answer is no one. The massive mistake that the Assyrians make, which is the temptation for Israel as well, is to think that Yahweh, the Lord, is a tribal deity just like all the other tribal deities around them without recognizing that the Lord is not merely the God of Israel, the Lord is the God of everyone. The Lord is the God of the Assyrians too. The reason that all these other nations have fallen is because they don't have real gods. But if you're living by sight rather than by faith, it certainly looks like nobody is going to be able to stop the Assyrians. In fact, at this point the Assyrians have also destroyed a lot of Judah. They've come right around the cusp of Jerusalem. Now, the people hear this, they're terrified, but they're forbidden to answer. So, these three leaders come back to the king and report what is said with their clothes torn at the end of chapter 36. And then you get this, chapter 37. This is the response. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that survives. Now, notice this, and this is crucial. They come into the presence of God to say, not, God, we're in trouble, bail us out. God, we're surrounded, help us. They come in to say, God, your name is being mocked. Maybe the living God will do something, and it's for His name's sake. That is, the ma- what they're maximally concerned about is the reputation of the Lord. What they want is God to act so that the nations won't think that the Lord is just like all the other gods. That's their concern. This is an incredible thing. You know, their land is basically being laid to waste. Their capital city is now being besieged. They might very well die, and they're not praying that God's just going to get them under the fire. They're praying, Lord, my goodness, did you hear this? Not, Lord, did you hear what they're going to do to me? They're praying, Lord, did you hear what they said about you? This is intolerable. Don't let them blaspheme you. You, and this is the critical difference, These are the words that the king of Assyria has sent to ridicule who? The living God. Not a God of stone, not a God of wood. This is the living God that they are ridiculing. 
Then King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down by the sword. You need to realize this. Never once in all of eternity, never once in all the unfolding of the time-space continuum, not for one moment has God ever been worried. Not even once. Do not be afraid. Isaiah, Hezekiah, Shebna, Joah, yes, I heard what the underlings of the great king of Assyria have said to me. Don't worry, I'm going to make him want to leave. Don't worry, rather than him cutting you down by the sword, his sons, which we'll find out later, will cut him down by the sword. Don't worry, I'm not concerned. You don't need to be concerned either. When the field commander heard what the king of Assyria had left, that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. Now Sennacherib received a report that Terhaka, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. So now the, the sort of the Egyptian allies are coming in. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard that the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Goz and Haran, Resfeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telazer? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpid? Where are the kings of Lair, Seraphim, Hina, and Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And this is a critical verse. Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. Hezekiah goes into the presence of God not to tell him what's happened, not to open up the letter so he can see it, but in, but in, but in dismay and anger, he just scatters the sheets in front of God and says, look at what he said about you. No, other nations haven't been delivered, but you are the living God. You're the king of all nations. You've made the heaven and earth, and they are ridiculing you. Verse 18, it is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people in their lands. They've thrown their gods in the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. This is what it amounts to. Is the Lord real? Is the Lord the living God? Is He the only God? If He is, then what does it matter 
that all the other gods have failed. They're not gods at all. What does it matter if, and, and, and I realize these are, they're talking about literal gods here. I want to be a little bit careful of making it a metaphor too quickly. But so what if the Western capitalistic economy crumbles? Does that mean that we don't trust in the living God anymore? So what if, if our political systems just degenerate into utter incompetence and immorality? Does that mean that there isn't a God on the throne of the universe? No matter what happens, no matter what chaos there is in all of the nations, is there a God a real God, a living God who made the heavens and the earth. Because if there is a God who made the heavens and the earth, then He is the God of all, over all. He is the great King. There is no challenger. There is no other reality. If God is real, if the Lord is real, then trust Him because nothing else is real in comparison to Him. There is no power against Him. There is no wisdom against Him. There is no knowledge against Him. There is no strength against Him. There is no king greater than Him. There is no king equal to Him. There is no king close to Him. Is He real? Do you trust Him? Or do you trust the Egyptians? Do you trust the market economists? Do you trust the pundits? Where's your trust? I mean, I, I will just say this. <sighs> One of the things that we are seeing right now is, to me, clearly the judgment of God and an enormous blessing. It is impossible, well, strong word, it's impossible to look at the political situation in the United States and not recognize an element of the judgment of God in the nation. It is likewise impossible to look at the political situation in Canada and not recognize the judgment of God in the nation. The enormous blessing is this. The states has probably never had, in, at least for a long time, the type of populism and far-rightness in political spectrum, as is, as is exemplified in the current president. And Canada has probably never had a prime minister and a government further on the spectrum to the left. See, if currently it was Donald Trump and Stephen Harper, everyone could say, well, it's because we're too far right. If it was Hillary Clinton and Justin Trudeau, people could say, it's because we're too far left. But we've never had farther right and farther left at the same time. And both are in disgrace. It's time to stop trusting Western liberal democracy. 
of the right or the left. It doesn't matter where you plot on the spectrum. Our government is not God. It's time to try trusting the living God. That's what we ought to do. And so we actually have an enormous opportunity in the political in the political landscape today as North Americans to say, hey, wait a minute. Even as evangelical Christians, we have sometimes been snookered politically into identifying a particular political party with the biblical theological Christian position. It's time to move past that. It's time to move past that simple equation. It's time to stop looking at one or two social ethical issues as defining politics for Christians across the board. And it's time to start actually trusting God with recognition that God owes nothing to any society. And it is pagan superstition to believe that somehow God needs to prop up liberal democracies where quality of life will just get better and better and better and better until Jesus returns. It doesn't matter what happens to the nations. God is the king. Lord, act, verse 20, deliver us from his hands that all kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Is this how you pray? When there are things in your life, do you pray, Lord, I need help so people can see you? Or, are, or is it, Lord, I need help for my own comfort? Lord, deliver me for me. It's no, Lord, deliver us so that everyone may know you. God, you show up, you do something in such a way that everyone will have to acknowledge that was a supernatural, powerful thing that took place. Jerusalem is not beating Assyria unless there's a power on their side that's greater. Then Isaiah, this is the part that I, I liked telling that girl in the canoe, Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is what the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. This is great. I am the great king, the king of Assyria. Look at all of my army. Look at all of my power. God says... Oh, great king, with your huge army, this little virgin girl is going to mock you while you run away. My little virgin daughter, Israel, mocks you and tosses her head in derision at your blasphemy towards me. Who is it that you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel, by your messengers, you have ridiculed the Lord, and you have said, with my many chariots, I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its junipers. I have reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Eden. You notice this sort of this personal, first-person perspective. Look at all, look what I have done. Look what I have conquered. Look at who I am. Listen to the political rhetoric today. All the self-aggrandizing. Look what I have done. I will do this. I have done this. I have accomplished this. Look at me. Look at what I have accomplished. Have you not heard? 
long ago I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. You, you realize, if there's anything you've ever accomplished in your life at all, it's because God has enabled you to do it. In days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass spreading on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you are and when you come and go and how you rage against me. This doesn't escape God's notice. Because your rage against me and because of your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. This will be a sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and in the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In other words, I will deliver my people, no matter who stands in my way. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Words, who's the great king now? You, you push God far enough, Sennacherib. You come against me and against my people. Be careful lest I arise in power and wrath against you and show the might of my hand. Don't put the Lord to the test. Do not mock God. Not just the city will survive the siege. He's not even going to build a siege ramp. I'm just going to send him back. He's going back the way that he came. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That's obviously David is long dead, centuries dead at this point. This is in terms of covenantal promises, and I have promises to David that David's son will reign forever. For David's sake, I will save a remnant of my people. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Cherazir killed him with the sword and they escaped the land of Ararat. And Esherhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. The angel of the Lord goes out and puts to death 185,000 Assyrians. And of course, in the idea here, and this is, one of the, this is one of the amazing things about it, is that the angel was entirely redundant. In other words, God didn't need the angel at all. One angel of God, the army of the superpower of the day, destroyed. One great king, the king of Assyria, the great king, worshiping his God, 
cut down by his sons. One little petty king in a petty nation, Hezekiah, worshiping the true God, delivered miraculously. Who are you going to trust? Who is your faith in? Who are you relying on? That's the question again and again and again that the text drives you towards. They blasphemed God, and God delivered Israel. Now, interestingly enough, there there is actually in Herodotus, there is historical, there is extra-biblical historical support for this story. Um, We have, there's a stell that was recovered, uh, an archaeological dig, uh, which talks about Sennacherib um, bragging about how he besieged Jerusalem and decided not to capture it because he felt that he just imprisoned, in his words, he had imprisoned Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. So he withdrew. Which is all very nice in terms of propaganda, but the Assyrians never withdrew from anyone. Herodotus reports that the Assyrian camp was overrun with mice that chewed through their bowstrings, so they withdrew. Others have theorized that the mice carried a plague and that the angel of the Lord used sort of plague to destroy the army. However you want to parse it out, Hezekiah prays, and there's a miraculous deliverance that God brings about into the destruction of the Assyrian army. Now, you read this, you go, oh my goodness, this is a person of incredible faith. But you need to read the next two chapters. I don't have time to unpack them. This will be your job. But 38 and 39, now they might also be chronologically disjointed. That is, it is entirely possible that chapters 38 and 39 chronologically fit before 36, 37, and that it's arranged thematically. One of the things we have to understand, and this is part of our, our problem with Western biography and linear history, is we do have to understand that very often ancient writers are not as obsessed with chronology as we are. That is, they arrange things thematically more than chronologically sometimes, and they also present just different… This is kind of like reminiscing. You know, you're sitting around and you're telling stories with people. And it's like, well, there was a time we did this, and there was a time we did that. You tell a few stories, and you're not doing it in strictly chronological order. You're sort of jumping around. So here what you have is two thematic vignettes. The one, the incredible trust of Hezekiah in the Lord and the deliverance. But then verses chapters 38 through 39, we find in 38 that Hezekiah is sick, and he's going to die, and he's not that old yet. And he sees all of his future potential going to waste, and he prays for healing. And the Lord heals him, through the medicinal treatment of Isaiah, and Hezekiah is given 15 years of life. Chapter 39, the Babylonians come. We're told in verse 2, does Hezekiah receive the envoys gladly? But it's literally Hezekiah rejoiced. And he showed, because he'd heard, uh, he showed, and he showed them what was in his store, the silver, the gold, the spices, fine olive oil, his entire army and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. What's he doing? He's rejoicing because Babylon is coming to see how important Jerusalem and Judah are becoming. This is politicking. 
This is the sort of thing that you have with um, you know, Castro and Che Guevara you know, in, in the late 50s, uh, going sort of wooing Moscow, right? trying to show we're important too. You know? and, and of course, part of the problem with, with uh, Castro and Guevara is they couldn't figure out if they wanted, if they wanted you know, sort of Soviet communism or Chinese communism. They couldn't figure out who they wanted to have. And so they tried to, got in trouble trying to work both of these angles with all the conflicts there was between China and Russia at that time terms of uh, communistic theory. The little tiny nation attracting the, the attention of the big ones. It's, it's, it's something you get excited about if you're a king. This is our chance. Oh, there's nothing. I show them everything. Look how important, look how rich we are. What an ally we would be for you. Isaiah comes. Where did these men, where did these men say? Where did they come from? Oh, from a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Same king same person. What a different outcome. Why? The first vignette against all odds, he trusts in the Lord and doesn't care a bit about the power of the nation that's against him. Here, he seems to care very little about what the Lord thinks and is rejoicing that he may be recognized by the Babylonians. Same person, two vignettes from his life. This can be discouraging, but it can also be hope-filling. It's entirely possible to be someone who has operated with a tremendous amount of faith in God, and then you go through a patch where you don't, where you struggle. It's also possible to be someone who hasn't exercised much faith in God, who learns the lesson from it and begins to exercise stronger faith in God at a different time. The question, really, from this text would be, where are you today? Assyrians or Babylonians? Forsaking the world or wooing the world? going all in with God or hedging your bets with things around you? Where are you? Where's your heart? Where's your God? Who's your God? Who are you really trusting in? God offers us a relationship with the only king there really is. And all we need to do is trust. That's it. Just trust in God. And let us not undersell the enormous number of temptations there are in the world to put our trust in other things and to hedge our bets. Because for most of us, it's not a matter of, 
I might just reject all of this. It's a matter of, I'll hold this and a little bit of, but I want a little bit of this too. There's a little bit of security here as well. These four chapters, historical vignettes, give you the message and the theology of the book. Trust in the Lord only. All or nothing. Do not hedge your bets. And you don't have to, because He's real. You don't need more than this. You don't need more than God. You don't need more than the Creator of the heavens and the earth. You don't need more than the Lord, who's the great King of all nations, the only living God. You don't need more than that. So either go all in or get out. But don't hedge your bets. Walk with God. Walk by faith. And when we celebrate something like communion, recognize that that if this isn't enough for you, then nothing ever will be. The great King delivers through dying your death. The great King to to atone for sin, the great King to, to atone for all the blasphemy and all the mockery, takes upon Himself all the sin and shame and scorn of the world. And He dies in our place. If this will not suffice, then nothing will. He doesn't just deliver us from a besieged city. He delivers us from hell and sin and Satan and death and guilt and shame. He delivers us not for 15 years of extra life, which is what Hezekiah gets when the boil is healed, not 15 years of extra life. What He gives us is eternal life. That's the delivery that we have, eternal life. To the living God, the only God, the maker of the heavens and earth, who's going to make a brand new heaven and earth, a home of righteousness, so you have a great place to live with Him forever. That's what He's done for you. For the cost of the blood of His Son, who voluntarily and willingly gave Himself for us. So let's take this seriously. And you can take things seriously and have joy at the same time. Look what God has done. Look at what He's doing. Think about what He will do. And the anchor point of it is the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trust God. I'm going to ask our, those who are going to help distribute these elements to come forward. You take a moment uh, just to pray individually, and we will celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together.